Some crimes are so horrific that even knowing the reason won't dull the horror. You're listening to old-timey crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. It's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here again this week to tell you about a crime that is old timey. But first, real quick, we're going to brighten our days with our rays of light. Scott, a survey of light. I I was listening to a podcast today. It was one that I just uh just kind of like came across. I can't even remember the name of it. It was uh it was these two girls hosting, and they were just so airheaded. And they came up with the most interesting bullshit theory I've ever heard in my life for a crime that we covered. And I actually, um, I had to stop the, uh, I had to stop the the podcast. I got paint all over my uh, my computer because I was painting a porch at the time. It was so fucking worth it. Their theory was. Uh, the boy in the box from from Philadelphia was actually Ted Bundy's first murder. What? <laughs> I hate to bring it to them, but unless Ted Bundy is a time traveler, um, oh that no, doesn't work. He was he was around twelve and in the area at the time. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was. No, he wasn't. No way. Yes, he was. Ted. He lived with his grandparents in the area at the time. Isn't that when wild was, to think? When was the boy in the box? 1955. Oh, that's right. That was a little. That was our one that we cheated on. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit later than our normal time span. Yeah, he was born in 46. And yeah, I did. I, I, I read um, The Stranger Beside Me, and he was living. But still, no, I don't. And I, he would have been. And like, he would have been nine. Nine. Actually. It was 1955. Then he would have been nine. No, okay, so according to Wikipedia, 1957. Oh, 1957? Okay, then he would have been 11. Okay. I, I guess 11 is old enough to kill. I don't think Ted Bundy killed the boy in the box. I do think Jeffrey Dahmer killed Adam Walsh. We're going real real dark okay. down the rabbit hole here. Anyway, anyway. Amber, what's your ray of light? Um, so my son turns three. So, happy birthday, Max. And I bought him a quad. And uh, that has brought great joy and uh, hilarity because the kid's a maniac. (laughs) So, he managed to drive straight into a bush and get both himself and the quad stuck in the bush. Mommy had to go rescue him. And uh, he took out my neighbor's planter, which was great fun. Uh, And he's ran into both my car and my husband's car repeatedly. Fucking planter had it coming. But the crazy thing is, he's actually a really good driver. He's deliberately hitting these things. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that makes he's all the difference in the world. crazy. <laughs> so, like, I, I can totally picture him driving one of those, like, giant monster trucks. Like, crush all the things. Um, so, yeah. He, but it's, it's been a lot of fun and a lot of, a lot of wildness at my house. But, uh a lot of laughs, so that's my ray of light. <laughs> I like it. 
Uh, my ray of light is that I received in the mail this week a lovely, lovely thing. Um, it is one of our good friend of the show and just amazing man about town, Chris Garcia, who... Ooh, we love Chris Garcia. We do. Yes, we do. Uh, I just, just want to our- play with his beard. <laughs> I know he's enjoying the hell out of this guy. <laughs> um, he sent me one of his, uh, at my request, one of his paper towel paintings that he's been doing, which I will put a picture up on the social media. And it is beautiful and abstract, and it's going to uh, adorn the walls of our lovely little studio here that someday we will be in together again. <laughs> and we also named it for Christy. Well, Scott yes. did. Yeah. Yes, Scott, na- what, Scott, what did you name my, my, uh, my, my paper towel painting? Well, it, it was a thing where you looked at it and said, oh, this spot kind of looks like a tiger. And I went, well, then we're going to call it Joe Chaotic. <laughs> Maybe a little yeah. late with the Tiger King stuff, but still. But we we also all realized that if uh, this were an ink blot test, we would probably be put in the loony bin. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. For Just sure. remember, everything's butterflies and flowers. Don't ever tell them. That looks like my father uh, murdering the maid. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Chris, for my lovely uh, ink blots. <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. So, um, yeah, somebody who maybe should have taken some ink blot tests is Charles Lawson. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, this is a, a tale about him and his family. And so Charles Lawson he married his wife, Fanny. Uh, she, uh, they married in 1911. At the time, she was 19. He was 25. They would go on to have just a crap ton of children. They had Marie, uh, Arthur, Carrie, Mabel, James, Raymond, and Mary Lou. And there was also one other child, William, who died in 1920 at age six of an illness. And at the time that we're discussing at the time of the the crime. Marie was 17. Arthur was 16. Although several articles, um, old old newspaper articles, pinned him as 19, so that was a little weird, but I'm pretty sure he was 16. Carrie was 12. Maybelle was 7. James was 4. Raymond was 2. And little Mary Lou was only 4 months old. Jesus Christ, it's a uterus, not a clown car. They were were procreating. And hey, you know, you, you gotta... They, they did the farming thing, as we'll talk about. So you got to have there was, those, that help. Say, there, there's no podcast for them to listen to. So the only other thing to do is procreate. That is true. Yeah, if it weren't for podcasts, we'd be seeing a real birth boom right now. Uh, they also had uh, two beagles, Sam and Queen. Now, in, 19, um, in the 1920s, early 1920s, Charles Lawson had been living um, in Lawsonville, which I don't know if it was named after the family or not, uh, but he, his brothers moved to, to Germantown, North Carolina, from Lawsonville, North Carolina, and so the Lawson family, I'm sorry, it wasn't 1920s, it was 1918, um, the Lawson family picked up and moved there. And then in they, he did some tenant farming for a while, including for the Browder family, so basically would you know, work other people's property. But then in April 1927, he was able to buy his own farm. And it was a 
acre tobacco farm. It was on Brook Cove Road. He mortgaged it essentially like with the owners. I guess it wasn't technically a mortgage, just payments to the owners to pay it off. Uh, it, it was $3,200 total, which is $47,000 in today money, which is a steal for a 128-acre farm. That's, yeah. that's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> and the payments were to be $500 a year. So would be paid off in you know a little over six years. So um, they also there was a 200 year old log cabin on the property and the family made some improvements to that, got it in order so that it, it wasn't terribly livable, but they got it in order. They put in like windows where the shutters were, et cetera, et cetera. There was no running water, uh, but there was a well and a spring nearby. So they did have access to water. And Charles actually dug out a basement in the house. Uh, he needed a pack house for the tobacco somewhere uh, where he could keep the leaves maintained and in, in the right conditions until they were ready, to, you know, he was ready to sell them. He wasn't doing too badly. He had three older model trucks that he'd gotten over the last few years, which, you know, trucks were the big thing for the farmers then. Everybody wanted one. Ah, uh, like trucks aren't a big thing amongst rednecks right now. Jesus. Oh, I know. Christ, sorry about your penises, guys. I've got a couple people who who either live near me or visit people who live near me who have the loudest loudest trucks you can hear them five miles down the road i swear to god oh so the family uh, attended primitive baptist church in walnut cove carrie and maybell went to germanton elementary they did pretty well there it was said that they did better than average as for personality and looks carrie was uh, sort of a neatnik she she liked she liked things to be in order she was a brunette, and she had blue eyes. Maybelle um, was said to be very pretty and quite particular about her looks. Bit of a girly girl when it came to, you know, how she presented herself. Nothing wrong with that. James and Raymond, uh, they just were, they were playful. They liked, the book said, uh, the book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas said they liked to get people to play, quote, picking and cutting up. End quote, which I guess is a game. I I, I read I read a little bit of that book, and I listened to a podcast uh, where she was a a guest on. It's a really good book. You need to change that fucking name. Yeah, well, when she uh, when when she republished it an expanded version later, she did pub- publish it under a different <laughs> name. So, but yeah, um, were you, did you get it from Open Library? Is that where you were reading it? I got it from some. Scott? I got it from someplace. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Never mind. Because when I went to read it, you can you can rent it off of Open Library for an hour, and then you can like continue the hour afterwards and rent it for another hour. So that's how I was able to read it. Because you can't. It's hard to get. Um, and uh, when I went to rent it first, somebody else was reading it, and I was like, I wonder if Amber or Scott found this. <laughs> No, you know we don't collaborate on our sources, so it's whatever happens happens. It would have been funny if it was one of you guys. <laughs> no, I got mine through less you don't need than to, you don't. honest means. Okay, all right, That's not fine. I. <laughs> so, well, somebody else was reading it, uh, but luckily they stopped, and I was able to read it. Marie, uh, the eldest daughter, she was also dark haired, and um, she was compared to actresses. She really was quite a, a beautiful girl. Um, she was getting some attention from the local boys and men. Arthur, the eldest son, he was tall, he was strong. He had 
people said the most striking feature of his were his light gray eyes, which there's a photograph we're going to discuss a little bit later. And when you look at that, it, it, it actually becomes a little creepy because the lighting in the photograph is it captures his eyes a little too well or doesn't capture them at all. Something like that. So he looks like, you know, almost he looks solid white. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fucking white walker. But yeah, like that, uh, that picture scared me a little. I'm not going to lie. Goddamn winter is coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was very memorable to people, especially with those eyes. Fanny, the mother, she was a nice woman. She was said to be very kind and even keeled. She was also pretty, had long, dark hair that she wore up. Blue-gray eyes is probably where Arthur got his. Um, and with this Mary Lou being born in August... That had been a, a rather difficult pregnancy. She had some nausea pretty much all through the pregnancy almost. Probably something like hyperemesis gravidarum, possibly. Um, the ooh, doctor ooh, act- I can make up words, too. She had, she had labia vagina-itis. I just know because I know somebody who had it. And it's basically where your morning sickness is times a million and extends throughout the pregnancy. Or usually, actually, I think it into the second trimester but going into the third trimester is pretty rare and yeah it can actually be pretty dangerous um one of the bronte sisters i'll be damned if i can remember which one probably died of it so it's pretty pretty rough wow Um, if i had a conscience i'd feel like an asshole right now but i'm just empty inside (laughs) (laughs) aren't we all so yeah usually she would um you know as was the the thing at the time have her births at home, but the doctor insisted that she have Mary Lou at the hospital because she had actually prior to getting pregnant with Mary Lou, she'd had a miscarriage as well. So everything was like, you know, but Mary Lou, it was a, it was an okay birth. It was fine. And Charles, most people said he was generally just a good guy. He worked hard for his family. He was a provider. You know, he was just, it was fine. Um, but, uh, there are and there are some that say that what happened when he was working on the house is what caused everything. But there are some people that say other reasons. Um, he had a head injury in, in 1927. He was using a mattock to clear some earth. He was trying to dig a drainage ditch for that basement that he dug out, and it rebounded off of something and hit him in the head. So he went to Germantown to see Doctor Hausebeck. And he had some cuts to his scalp that hit blood vessels. So that's it probably, at least in Dr. Helsebeck's mind, looked worse than it was. Uh, his eyes were actually like blackened for a few weeks. Um, but the, the doctor said, no, you'll, you'll be all right. And some people say that after that he changed. Uh, some didn't. There were reports that he would just, he would be having a conversation with people and then just stop in the middle of a sentence and just wander off. You know, he couldn't really concentrate, it seemed. And some of the neighbors noticed that the family was having some problems. They heard violence and and fights coming from the house. They had overheard Charles threatening his family's lives during one fight. It just wasn't a pretty picture. In 1928, Charlie, uh, Charles and his son Arthur, they take a sales trip to Winston-Salem. And it's a good trip. Uh, sales are going well, everything, until when he's in the warehouse, he gets in a scuffle um, with a black man who caught him in the leg with a tobacco cart. Then he proceeded to call the guy a racist name, and it escalated from there. During that fight, he got stabbed several times with a switchblade, and he ended up spending two weeks in the hospital. And it was, was said that he was known to be 
quite the racist, so. Uh, White man, this time in history, I find that hard to believe. In the South? In the South, yeah, too. The, the bastion of tolerance, the South. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're listening to this from the American South, but honestly, you deserve it. <laughs> they don't deserve it. If they're listening to us, they're probably not racist. This is true. I'm saying that general area. Look, if a, somebody came up to me and said, you're a hockey-loving maple syrup sucker, I would have to agree. Welcome to Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's, it's somehow manages to be the Florida of the North and also almost Canada. Yeah. I, that's, <laughs> that's why it's Canada town. That's what Pennsylvania is. Little Canada. We are a complicated state. Uh, I wish we were Little Canada, but we are oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, we are. Yeah. May 1929, Charlie is doing chores, and Arthur is, meanwhile, getting the cultivator and the mule ready. So Arthur's doing the cultivating, and Charles takes exception to how he's doing it. He goes, and he gets a switch off a tree, and he threatens to whip Arthur with it. Arthur grabs the stick... He snaps it in half, and he says, you ain't going to whip me no more. And Arthur was really the one who could hold, he was the only one who could hold Charles back when he lost his temper and keep him from hurting anyone. So he, you know, as Charles, or as Arthur grew, he became the, you know, he had to protect his family from his own father. Now, this well, is... He- even in the picture, it was pretty apparent that he, he towered over his father by a few inches and he looked much healthier. Yeah. Like you, you couldn't tell if he was muscular, but he definitely looked like he, he could hold his own. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I would agree with that. Uh, so, yeah, he could definitely hold his own. Um, now, in late summer 1929, this is, this is a thing that happened. And we can choose to believe it or not. Uh, so, Charles's niece, Stella, uh, one of the brothers that he'd followed out there, this was his young daughter, she dreamt of Fanny carrying wood up to the porch of her house. Uh, there was uh, new snow all around. And two men were running with guns toward the house. But she didn't tell anybody about this dream until after everything that we're about to tell you happened, happened. So that's the thing that maybe happened. Um, <laughs> a few months Before Christmas 1929, Charles was having uh, headaches and difficulty sleeping. So he went to the doctor. He also had some sort of growth on his chest that sounds real weird. It was described as being reddish, like a burn, and about two hands width, which is pretty big for a growth. And it was causing him some pain, too. That's really weird. And it popped out and said, open your mind to me. (laughs) Yeah, like, that's a scary size of growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not good. Dr. Helsebeck, what you doing? Take a look at that shit. Come on. Fanny also reported that Charles would just, in the middle of the night, he would just bolt right out of bed and go and check all of the guns in the house. Or uh, if he wasn't doing that, he would just, in the middle of the night, wander around the property without any particular goal in mind. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't going to make sure the barn was locked up. He was just wandering. Now, a few months before Christmas, he also told some friends, very casual, like, quote, I wouldn't mind dying if I could only take my family with me, end quote. Don't, Don't say stuff like that. And if your friends start to say stuff like that to you, 
say something to somebody. Yes, do do say something, please. So, uh, then about uh, a few weeks before Christmas, um, possibly earlier than that, Fanny told some of her relatives about a, a, a difficult family issue that involved Charles, and we will get into that uh, later because that's part of one of the one of the running theories about this. Ten to twelve days before Christmas, you can you can tell we're working up to Christmas here, perhaps. And the title of the book I mentioned earlier might have given that away too. <laughs> it's I heard though that he hated Christmas too. Well, I don't know, honestly, um, because it, it seemed like it was mentioned that he would always have some sort of special Christmas present for his family. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't know, but they didn't really celebrate it that much that year. But, you know, I don't know. Um, he sure as hell wasn't Santa Claus. I'll tell you that. So he 10 to 12 days before Christmas Charles said to Fanny and the kids, hey, we're going to go to Winston-Salem. You're each going to get to buy a new outfit, uh, whatever you want. Money's no object. And then we're going to go and we're get our, our family photograph taken. Now, this is 45 minutes away. And also, it's December. I mean, even though it's in North Carolina, it's still cold. It was going to snow pretty soon here. Um, uh, but the kids would ride in the back of the truck. This just sounds unpleasant. Um, but this was all part of a, a Christmas surprise for the family. This was their, their family photograph and everything. Um, two days before Christmas, Charles went to Walnut Cove. He went to the bank and he got out $60, which is a lot to carry around because that's about $900 today's money. So, you know, well, most of us don't just carry around $900. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't carry around any money now. But Depends <laughs> yeah, on how many like... prostitutes I'm buying that night. <laughs> I I usually have very little cash on me, if any. And the quality of prostitutes, I, I must say. Yeah, those two, you know, uh, the, the, that's they're both part of the equation. Absolutely, you know? one one affects the other. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> now, on Christmas morning, there was about six inches of snow on the ground that had actually it had come days before, and over at Charles's uncle's house this was his uncle joe who was quite elderly starting from breakfast and lasting until around 2 30 p.m uh, uncle joe was crying and he just couldn't stop for no apparent reason and this was not the type of man who would just you know would just cry it certainly wasn't the time when m- many men cried so it was it was noted as rather strange it's honestly it's that paranormal thing if there wasn't a reason and he just felt like crying that day. It's kind of that sinister paranormal thing that I talk about every once in a while. Like, it's, it is a little creepy. You got to admit. Something about this does have that feel for sure. Yeah. Christmas at the Lawson farm, Charles's nephew Sanders had spent the night. Fanny got up at dawn. She made breakfast. Charles got up and he saw to the fire, made sure it was good and roaring, but... There's no presents, no gifts. Charles, he said, I have a big surprise on Christmas, but no one saw any sign of it yet. Marie, she had plans to go. Remember, that's the eldest daughter. I feel like I need to point these things out because we have such a big cast of characters here. She had plans to go to a Christmas service at Palmyra Church that afternoon or evening 
with Charles Wade Hampton, who they had a pretty serious thing going on, and there was definitely the potential for marriage there. Prior to that, and before she started getting ready, she made a raisin cake for the family. That, now, that raisin cake gets really creepy really quick, doesn't it? It gets so creepy. Yeah. So creepy. Uh, well, I never that, knew a cake would be so creepy. First off, God help me. God help me. The sick, twisted part of my mind went, you know what? If my wife made a raisin fucking cake, maybe I'd murder the entire family, too. But Daughter, but still. Still. Whoever, whoever gets it, me, myself, and everybody around me has to die. Because raisin cake? Fucking hell. Like, you Shit. take a slice of that cake, and you're like, oh, it's going to be like chocolate chips, and you fucking taste raisin? Dead. Everyone's okay, dead around you me. You stop it. She <laughs> baked two lay two separate cakes and then iced them and then topped it with raisins. Everybody thought they were chocolate chips. But he- this is this is nineteen twenty nine. Like it it's like the their version of the fruit cake, I guess. It's a fucking cake with some fruit on top. Yeah, but- raisins were probably a treat back then. Ra- yes, Scott. Raisins are the devil's <laughs> nut hair. <laughs> Marie finished making her devil's nut hair cake. (laughs) (laughs) And then she was getting ready to go. She was doing her hair and everything. And meanwhile, the local, some of the local men from around and Charles and Arthur and the nephew, they were doing some target shooting outside. They stopped for lunch and everybody left except for Charles, Arthur, the nephew Sanders and a local boy who's never named that Charles didn't really like. And Charles said, well, let's all go into Germantown. We got to get more ammo. You know, probably would do some hunting later. They would, you know, on Thanksgiving like morning, he had gone out, hunted rabbits, and come back with the, the Thanksgiving dinner, essentially. Well, so You got to remember, this wasn't, this wasn't them hunting for fun. This was them hunting for food. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. he was going to go out and bring home dinner. Exactly. Or, you know, that's what people thought. And the local boy was like, um... I'll just stay here at the house. Uh, and like I said, the, the, the book doesn't name him out of respect for his privacy, but does claim to know his identity. Um, Charles comes back to the house while Arthur and Sanders are still out heading to Germantown to get ammo. Carrie and Maybell, I'm going to remind you of their ages, um, were, Carrie and Maybell, were 12 and 7. And they were actually getting ready to go to their aunt and uncle's that afternoon. And they were going to spend the night. They leave the house. They're in their coats and their hats. They're walking while Charles is checking something in the barn. Or that's what he told Fanny he was going to do. He gets his guns. And from behind the tobacco barn, as they're headed out, he surprises them. He shoots Carrie in the head. Maybell turns to run towards the house, uh, but before she can get anywhere at all, he shoots her in the back left side. Uh, and they're both still alive, so he bludgeons them with the butt of the rifle. Then they're dead. He proceeds to drag them to the barn. He puts stones under their heads. He basically like lays them out funeral-like and, and crosses their arms. Uh, there were later reports that said he chased them from the house, but it was pointed out in the book that they were in their outerwear, 
you know, if you chase them out of the house, they're not stopping to grab their coats. So just makes sense, I guess. Yeah. This was, uh, I'll tell you what, this was, this was fucking heartbreaking. It is brutal. Yes, yeah. it is absolutely brutal and, and so sad. All the potential that was snuffed out that day. Fanny was out on the porch uh, with fresh firewood, like in Cousin Stella's dream, or niece Stella. When she sees Charles, he shoots her in the chest, literally ripping her heart open. Then he proceeds to bludgeon her as well. The local boy, unnamed local boy, is still there. He and Marie, they hear all this commotion. They run to the window and they see what's hap- what, what, what has happened. The boy, he's, he's out. He's out the back door and he's gone. He's, it's very, you know, cartoon. There's just a puff of smoke where he was. Honestly, Marie, the smartest nine-year-old that I know. I don't know if he was nine. I feel like he was maybe in his teens, but I don't know for sure. Whatever the age, fucking smart. Smart, but then Marie stayed, and the boy went to his own house. He tells his family they discussed all of this, but they were like, well, it's too dangerous to go over there, so we'll just stay here, and did absolutely nothing. Nothing. Hmm. Nothing. I wonder why Marie didn't run. She, I think, was... Because she had just seen her mother shot. She probably went into some shock, first of all, and and might have been incapable of, of... running and second of all she's in the house with the little ones i mean she's in there with a a four-year-old a two-year-old and a three-month-old yeah so maybe she was trying to get to the kids yeah that's possible too she thought you know like she could protect them or help them hide that um honestly it's it's a thing too that's your dad that's the person you're supposed to trust most in the world and you got to be sitting there thinking oh this is some sort of joke you know, especially at that young age. Yeah, you can't absorb the realism of it. It's that that thing where you see something happen that is so unbelievable to you that you think your brain starts to try to find ways around it to, to make it not be true because you can't accept the reality of the situation. Right. Which didn't work out well. Um the neighbors hear shots and screaming. There is quite a, a fight between Marie and Charlie. Uh, he later had some of uh, or his skin ended up under her nails, so she had been scratching at him. He, it's said in the book that he grabbed her upper arms. I'm assuming they got that from bruises on her arms. That's that's all. But it didn't state anything about bruises in an autopsy or anything like that. Um, she goes to grab the fireplace poker, but he shoots her. It is now 1.25 p.m., and we know this because the clock stopped when he shot her. Um, many people think either it's, it's the clock on the mantle, it stopped on its own, or Charles stopped it, you know, to mark the moment or something, but uh, the, the author of the, the book, uh, who has some expertise with timepieces, said it was probably sound waves. This, I'm super simplifying and even possibly not getting this entirely right. But essentially, s- sound waves stopped the mechanism that makes the pendulum go when Marie was shot. The sound waves from the gun. Once again, it's that paranormal thing. 
Like there's it, a there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for it, but it does still have that paranormal feel. Right. Just the very fact, even with an explanation, just the very fact that it stopped when she died. It, it's it's almost like whatever's doing this. If you associate this with the paranormal, whatever's doing this is saying, "I want you to know exactly when I did this." It, it's almost like a fucking signature. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's uh, and it certainly if you attach that paranormal aspect to it, then one of the theories we'll discuss later definitely adds to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Makes it it, ma- it makes the significance it makes the clock stopping seem even more significant. You know, and then you have like the 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 prem- uh, premonitive. My God, that has to be a word I just made up. Premonitive. The, the I premonition, like I, I think it should be a word if it's not, um, the dream, the premonition, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, it's... And the crying. Yeah, there's something, there's something strange going on here, and maybe, yeah, I'm going to be the first guy to admit, because as, as listeners know, I'm kind of the skeptic, and believe me, nobody's more surprised than these two, um, but, but quite honestly... There's something else that seems to be going on here. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, just the sheer utter brutality of it. Um, and the, I don't know, there, there's two sides of me. There's one side that can see all those things that you pointed out, um, all the, the things that have a sort of supernatural lean. And the other, there's the other side that can see the potential explanations and even the way some of those explanations can weave together and, and you know, kind of escalate each other. And I can see I can see both sides essentially is what I'm saying. Yeah. Now the little boys, James and Raymond, I'm gonna refresh on their ages. They were four. Uh, James and Raymond was two. They had run to hide. Um, James was hiding under the bed, and Raymond was hiding under the stove. Charles managed to get James, and he bludgeons him with the gun. And he, uh, when. Raymond was found. He was half in and half out of under the stove. He was bludgeoned. Uh, the thought is that Charles must have coaxed him out until he could reach him, which is just shit. Yeah. That's... My heart can't take that. It's, it's too much. This, this was a tough... It. This was a really tough one for me to get through. It was... I had to pod, pause the podcast I was listening to... I, I had to stop several times uh, to get through this. This was a tough one. Just, it, it's always rough whenever a child dies, but so many children dying. This, yeah. this was rough. Like and somebody they trusted it. Yeah, the worst. And and not not that like I have, I, I don't. I it's not that I don't have like sympathy for whenever adults pass away, but like you said, it's so much wasted potential. Like you see a little kid. Like you just want to you know, throw a ball to him. Here, Johnny, catch the ball. Toss it back to me. You know, maybe that's the, the old fatherly part of me. But, man, this just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. And then, even more heartbreaking, he then proceeds to bludgeon for four-month-old Mary Lou. Four months. See, and and that one really bothers me. Like, they all bother me. But, I mean, what is a baby going to do? They're not going to tell the cops who did it. 
Like, why would you hurt a baby? He is taking his family with him. And then maybe if, if you know, they, they, they go to church every week, he could definitely be of a religious bent. Um, he's maybe thinking that they'll all be together again. Well, most of them will. Yeah. Not him. And then as far as the actual method of killing goes with all the, the shooting and the bludgeoning, the supposed thought process is that this is how he would have killed an animal. The, 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 the fastest way he knew was to, you know, either just, if it's something more defenseless, just bludgeon it. If it's, you know, something that could fight back a little bit more, shoot it, shoot the animal, then bludgeon it. So he's doing the same thing with the, with the children, but it's horrifying. He goes and gets Fanny's pillow from the bed, puts it under her head. He does the same with each child. And several sources state they were also, um, all the bodies in the house were also laid out with arms crossed over the chest. Hmm. At this point, Charles's brother Elijah and his sons are coming over to the house. They find the carnage. They go to open the door and they see Fanny. And they, I believe they see Marie too. So they... You also hear a noise upstairs, so they're thinking whoever did this, and of course they're not thinking Charles yet. Um, they are, are like, okay, whoever did this might still be here. We need to go get help. They go over to Bob Heath's house, about one-tenth of a mile down the road. While they're hurrying away, one of the sons looks back, and he sees a face in the upstairs window, and he thinks it's Charles. Which mm-hmm. is creepy. Mm-hmm. Once they get to Bob Heath's, uh, his son goes out looking for Arthur and Germanton to tell him what's happening. Meanwhile, Charles gets the bodies all laid out. Then he takes his gun. He had one left that was working. And he heads into the woods behind the barn. He gets a forked twig from a tree. And he grabs an, an old receipt from his pocket and a, and a pencil. And he Now, what he writes is up for debate. Because in the book, it said he wrote, first he wrote, troubles can cause, and then stopped. And then he wrote, no one to blame, but, and then stopped. So two thoughts, both incomplete. Those papers are later found in his pocket. And then old newspaper articles from the day, um, one of them said a full note was found in his pocket that said, I did it, blame no one but me. And another one, another newspaper had the note reading, blame nobody but I. So source, I can't even do sources very wildly on this one. Nah, nah this, no. one, this yeah. one's heartbreaking. I'm, I'm finding trouble uh, making jokes about this. We'll get to the jokes later. Yeah, we'll get there, I'm sure. Don't worry, you sick fucks. The funny is coming. (laughs) There was also uh, later on $50 to $60 found in his pockets, but he didn't do anything yet. He had to possibly work up the nerve is the theory. Word does get around the the neighbors and everybody in the area before the sheriff and everybody can get out there, because remember, there's a decently fresh snowfall on the road, and so it's tough getting out there, and the crowds start gathering already. Um, Arthur arrives at the general store and he hears that something bad has happened at his house. I I don't know how specific they were, but he does hear something bad happened. He hurries home. He sees what's happened to his mother and he goes into shock. Around 2.30 p.m. is when Charles's Uncle Joe and his family get news about the murder. And that's when Uncle Joe is finally able to stop crying. 
he and his grandson, who was an, an adult, uh, they head over. Um, they go the 13 miles to get to the Lawson farm and see what they can do. Everyone in the area is on the lookout for the murder because they haven't, well, they found these other bodies. They haven't found Carrie and Maybelle, and they also don't know where Charles is. So in their minds, Charles could just as well be a victim or he could have taken the girls to try to protect them, be on the run. Nobody really knows. And I don't think they could as yet conceive the truth. Um, they, they think maybe he might be hiding, you know, he and the girls might be hiding in the attic, but nobody's up there. And so when they're not found, the local farmers bring their guns and they're stationed around the farm to keep watch for anything unusual. And, uh, some time goes by. Fuck. It's almost a hundred years later. I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, I can't, I can't blame them one bit. No, I, I, I get it. I yep. get it. I totally get it. Their uh, activity at the house at, at this time, while we're in this sort of pause state of action, one of the neighbors, he kind of scoops and scrapes all the blood into a tub and buries it. Uh, some articles would claim that it, the blood was poured into the ground, but the book made pains to clarify that it was, it was buried, um, which, okay. And the police are working on getting the bodies out of the house. The neighbors bring over some bed sheets they can use as coverings. There are multiple hearses, but they can't make it all the way up to the house. So they have to kind of rig up uh, some sled-like contraptions to transport the bodies. As they're getting ready to do this, around 5 p.m., they hear a final shot from the woods. Charles is out in the woods behind the barn. It takes him hours, as you can tell. We, we know that he shot Marie at 125, and it probably didn't take him too much longer to dispose of the rest of his family like they were yesterday's trash, this asshole. Um, and finally, he uses the twig sort of as a mechanism to pull the trigger and shoots himself in the chest. His two dogs, Sam and Queen, are found with him still alive and baying and also some footsteps are found in the snow around the tree. It looked like he was pacing around the tree, probably trying to gather up the nerve to kill himself. Okay, this is for our listeners. If you decide to kill yourself, the best way to do it is by what? like an ingenious Rube Goldberg device. <laughs> so you have Scott. to have like, like sand going into a weight, and that weight goes down, and that lifts a pencil up, and it also opens up the cage... And then this woodpecker pecks the pencil and the shavings fall down where a magnifying glass is lit. And then the shavings catch fire and then that sets a candle and then the candle is tied to a string with a weight going through a shotgun thing that blows your chest open. That's how you do it. I, I know you're going for um, suicide results that will likely fail and leave the person alive and also still be darkly comedic. <laughs> But we're not giving people any advice on suicide. No, no, no. If you're going to, if the cops are going to be there, really make them work to figure out how you did it. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody figures out after that pretty quickly that it must have been Charles who had committed all the murders. I think some people, probably the neighbors might have had some little suspicions in the back of their mind, but maybe didn't quite, weren't quite ready to admit it. But people gathered in droves. There were crowds and more crowds outside the house as it got dark. 
everybody wants to go in and see the scene. Look, I know that we're true crime podcasters and we look at dark and lurid things every week and talk about them at length and then Scott makes jokes. I know that. So I know I have no room to judge, but I will still absolutely stand in judgment of the guy who said, I'll give you $500 in cash if you let me inside to see the bodies. Here's the thing. I know this for a fact. About two weeks ago, a kid was hit by a car outside my window. I walked out in the porch. I looked over. The kid was crying. Uh, There was a cop there. Help was there. You know what I did? I walked my ass back inside because I'm not a fucking ghoul. I may be an asshole and make jokes about it. I ain't a fucking ghoul. Me standing out there ain't going to make things better. Quite the contrary. It's probably going to make things worse. So if you see a crime happen, in, you know, if the cops are there, step the fuck off. And don't be scooping up the blood and rearranging the bodies in hilarious poses. No matter how much you want to. Because they frown on that, and I speak from experience. I think the neighbor who was scooping up the blood was essentially trying to clean up the crime scene and had, had good intentions. Was not doing a smart thing, but had good intentions. To be fair, it was, you know, 1929. So yeah. I was like, what are we going to do with the blood? You know, eh, fuck it. No, they buried it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they I'm, I'm rubbing off oh, on Christy. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> So there is an autopsy. It is performed by Dr. Halsebeck, but actually Dr. Spotswood Taylor is in town. He is a <laughs> surgeon from Johns Hopkins. He came for the holidays to see his family. And, um, you know, when you're in town and there's a horrible, brutal murder and you're a doctor, you're like, OK, well, I guess I'm helping out with this autopsy. I fucking love the name. People need to name their kids like that. Amber did a great job naming her son Maximus. Beautiful. Yes. Good work. I don't know how you're going to discipline him as he gets older, but Maximus, stop it. Well, my name's Maximus. I don't have to do anything. Minimus. Just yells, Maximus, and he goes, yeah, I am. Yes, and he drops down the Morning Star and the fucking battle shield he has, and he's wearing gladiator sandals. No, you actually, he just ignores you. Like, he doesn't care. Because his name's Maximus. I think that's what it is. He just he just doesn't care what you have to say because what he's doing is way more fun. You did it to yourself. That's okay. I'm totally okay with it. <laughs> this episode of Old Timey Crimey is brought to you by Best Fiends. Our listeners know that we love playing Best Fiends. Uh, If you haven't played before, it's a casual game, so it doesn't stress you out. It's just a great refresher when you need a break. It challenges your brain with fun, challenging puzzles, and you get to collect all these cute characters like our perennial favorite, Pop the Axolotl. (laughs) And you don't even need the internet to play. No Wi-Fi, no problem. Play anytime, anywhere. All right, guys. Drum roll. No, I'm not going to ask for a drum roll from Scott. He'll actually go to the drum and give me one. Uh, It's time for the level check. Where are you? 472. I am at level 1,330. Still gaining on me, but not quite there. I am at 1,624. 
You are <laughs> kicking my butt. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Oh, but I gotta know. Okay, so I, how many keys do you have? Because I know that you are a hoarder of the keys. Right now, I think I have around 250. I think I've only upped my game on the meteorites. I have over 8 million. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. This autopsy, uh, they did look at the brain, and uh, Dr. Helsebeck said it was, quote, undergoing a low grade degenerative process, end quote, and that there was a weird spot in the center of the brain that was out of proportion. And the brain was even sent to Johns Hopkins, but Dr. Taylor would later say that he didn't see anything different about it and and that the injury wasn't bad enough to cause Charles to do what he did. But it was 1929, and they they didn't know. So Look, I have seen... My my second wife had a frontal lobe brain injury. We went to a ton, a ton of brain injury support groups, at least one a week for years. You, uh, my, my second uh, wife had a damaged chunk of her frontal lobe the size of a golf ball, just black, dead, missing. Unless you saw her behave, you, if you just spoke to her, you wouldn't assume anything was wrong. And then you go to a brain injury support group and the, and the person goes, yeah, I slipped and fell off the toilet. And now I can't stop punching my wife. Yeah. You know, each brain injury is different. Absolutely. I don't care if you're seeing some malformation. It may not. It, it may not present itself, but something's there. Something's there. Even after a concussion, something's there. Yeah, the, the, the behavior definitely speaks to something, and we'll, we'll go into that a little, a little deeper later. But yeah, it definitely, the, the weird behavior, I, I know maybe people are just looking for an explanation and one that isn't as, as horrifying as the other potential explanation, but still. So, the bodies are taken into town to be embalmed. There's too many for the funeral home, so they're taken to a store, I think, of some sort, um, and embalmed there. There, uh, on December 27th, there is a funeral. Three to 5,000 people came. The streets were clogged three miles in every direction. Uh, they actually, the Browder family, the former landlords for the Lawson family, donated a plot in their family cemetery uh, for William back when he passed in 1920. And then they expanded it for the entire Lawson family. It was seven caskets in one grave, and uh, the baby was buried in Fanny's arms. Hmm. That's just kind of sweet. Sweet and also just heart-wrenching. Yeah. And it's also, there's, okay, I'm trying to, I want to have some compassion for Charles, because obviously he was not in his right mind. Mental illness care, you know, TBI care, all these things were not even a thing, you know, that that wasn't an idea. As far as society was concerned at the time and and medicine and psychology, uh, I do want to have some compassion for the fact that, you know, he he definitely 
was not in his right mind. And I, I hope that the person he was prior to whatever made him snap wouldn't have done what he did. If one of the other theories, if the non-TBI theory is correct, then I, I don't have any compassion. Um, but at the same time, no matter what the reasoning is, I kind of struggle with the fact that they're buried in the same grave as the person who murdered them. Yeah, I, I heard a little bit of a side, side note here. Let's take a happy side note. Just because I feel like this is a tough one and we need a little bit of a break. I do have a happy side note in the form of some old-timey newspapers coming up in a second. Ooh, nice. My little happy <laughs> side note. I, uh, I, I read, this, uh, read this story that this guy posted. Uh, his, uh, his mom and dad had died. And it's a huge family, so every time he would go to their grave, it was, it was a thing where like, there would be a ton of flowers. And he looks over at the person who's buried next to their, uh, next to their parents, never has any flowers. So he starts bringing flowers to this person's grave. And pretty soon, like, you know, just not a lot, but every once in a while, just, you know, I feel bad for you. He decides, I know nothing about this person. I should look them up. Turns out he'd been, for a year, this guy had been putting flowers on a guy who murdered his family. Oh, my gosh. Right? So. Wow. He feels the need to apologize to dead people at this mm. point. He's going to stop putting flowers on the murderer's grave, as you do. And he, he tracks down where the rest of the family's buried. He goes there with some flowers, and he's standing in front of the grave, and he goes, okay, this is weird. I'm very sorry. I didn't realize. He puts the flowers down, and this woman behind him goes, what are you doing putting flowers on my, uh, on my aunt's grave? And so he has to turn around to this woman and tell her the story of how he's been putting, putting like flowers on this guy's grave, the guy who took this woman's family from her. And she goes, okay, that's weird, but I get it, I guess. And he's walking away and he turns around and goes, hey, would you want to grab a coffee sometime? And they got married like a year later. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That is wonderful. Isn't that wonderful in a weird, weird, true crime way? Super weird way, but absolutely wonderful. So back to the horror. Back to the horror. Um, the, the story was covered in newspapers all over in January. And this one, this newspaper, which I am going to investigate further for future old tiny crimes, because it strikes the weirdest tone with some of its stories. So I'm going to tell you the... Um, I'm going to read you the, the little bit that was written for this, and then I'm going to read you another bit that was written for another particular uh, thing that happened. Uh, I want to make sure I have it. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, it disappeared. Oh, no, I, I have it. Okay, Excellent. Have it. All, right. All right, so. Okay, so. Um, this is just a little note on page two, among other items. Ye gods, what gruesome tragedy can occur at times of merrymaking. Charlie B. Lawson, well-known Stokes County farmer, killed his wife and six of his seven children and then took his own life just a few hours after Santa Claus had come to his home. The wanton massacre seemed to have been studied out and planned thoroughly. Insanity caused by despondency over financial reverses was given as the cause of his act. 
I just the picture way it starts. <laughs> I picture the editor of the newspaper going to somebody and going, George, get the fuck in here. What, sir? <laughs> George, get the fuck in my office right now. Hand over the thesaurus, George. <laughs> Hand it over. What the fuck are you doing? Writing an article about a family dying like a carnival barker trying to hawk stuffed teddy bears. Get the fuck out of here. Never darken my door again. So this was on in the same paper, on the same page. This was the Independent out of uh, Elizabeth, North Carolina. Gosh, some folks play rough, don't they? Eugene Gunter, Lee County Road Superintendent's son, was driving a road scraper and refused to let J.W. Hall pass in his car. Hall got out and remonstrated with him, whereupon Gunter struck him on the head with a hammer. Hall's skull was crushed and he is now fighting for his life in a Sanford hospital. Golly gee, George Edgars was raped by a bear the other day. The bear's 14-inch penis crushed his sternum. Guess he couldn't bear it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Fuck it you. Is, seriously. <laughs> everything. This, this newspaper is bizarre. It's so bizarre. There's, a, there's a, another story right above that one. It's longer, so I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. But it's basically about how it doesn't have, it strike the same tone. So I think it's probably another, another writer. But it's basically about how a professor at Howard College in Birmingham, Alabama, was uh, kicked out because he wouldn't uh, accept literally the biblical account of Jonah being swallowed by a whale and Noah loading two of each animal species into his ark. <sighs> yeah, and so, so this, is, this is definitely, you know, there, there's another article about somebody hitting somebody else with their car and it starts with seems like we ain't never satisfied if we have money we want more money if we have trouble we make more trouble and then proceeds to talk about an escaped convict running over and killing a woman and so on and so forth like it is just like what is even happening it's just a bunch of scots writing the newspaper it's so (laughs) Weird. All right. So that was our little. I'm. I'm definitely gonna be collecting more of those for an old tiny, um, crimey when we do the the newspapers because they're just so strange the tone, and it's just it's bizarre. So, so I feel like Scott has like a little wheel that he spins, and like one of the options on the wheel is get real fucked off, and so like raisins spin. Yes, hate raisins. Like. <laughs> Sylvia Brown. <laughs> ask me, ask me any day of the week what I feel about Sylvia Brown and raisins, and I will tell you. <laughs> I and will, you have. I will. The only thing worse than Sylvia Brown or raisins is Sylvia Brown with a pack of raisins. <laughs> All right. So back to uh, the the aftermath here. Exactly three months after the murders, the song The Lawson Murder was recorded. Now, this was written by one Walter Kidd Smith, and it was sung by Posey Rohrer, a North Carolina musician, who basically, he sent articles about the Lawson murders to Columbia Records. And Columbia Records is like, yeah, come on up to New York and audition. So Posey Rohrer gets a band together called the Carolina Buddies, including Walter Kidd Smith. They ace the audition and they record it on March 25th, 1930 for Columbia Records. 
and it was covered by another group for another label. So it, it becomes quite the popular thing. And there's there's one there was one thing that said that mothers would actually sing it as a lullaby for their children. And I'm like, okay, I have a true crime podcast. I have two true crime podcasts, and I say that's. N- no, some of those fucking lullabies are sick. Like Rockabye Baby, they that shit needs to be stopped. True, true. We've we've lost the meaning behind them, and yeah, yeah, you're right. So Arthur, in the aftermath of this, he hops from relative to relative over the next couple of months, staying with somebody for a little while, and then and then moving on. It takes him a long while to go back to the house, as one might imagine. And now comes the. I get it, but also, what the fuck? Yeah. But I, I just, mm-hmm. what? So, one of Charles's brothers is, is Marion Lawson. And there are all these curiosity seekers coming to the property and looking and wanting to see the scene. And so they rope it off and charge admission. 25 cents a piece. I get it i mean he's he's not that old he's trying to run the farm by himself fuck it he's got to make a living dude's got to eat and if you can appeal to morbid curiosity go for it i'm staring directly at you listener see this is the thing i like because i i actually saw in one of my sources that at their peak they were doing as many as 500 people a day and a bunch of them stole raisins off the cake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had the cake set up, still there. Um, and over time, people were either eating them, and Scott hates those people, or uh, swiping a little little souvenir until they put a glass cake cover over it. And then there were st- still stories of the raisins being sold from anywhere from $0.10 cents to $5. But uh, the book says no one who showed the house was connected to the raisin sales, so it might have been sold by the people who swept them from the cake, if anybody actually did. I would get a fucking box of raisins and right? just sell <laughs> raisins. Oh, you want a raisin? Yeah, sure. Here, this one comes from a murder scene. That'll be $5, you dumb bitch. <laughs> that, uh, that that quarter admission is about uh, three seventy five today, so that's about what people were paying. Like at this um, point, I can buy three boxes of raisins for a dollar. I sell one for five dollars. Shit, I've made a profit. And you could buy photos, um, like a pack of souvenir photos of the murder scene, and a nice nice frosty coke. Uh, so yeah, nice refreshments. Now, the photos uh, do appear in the book, um, except for there was one set that Arthur would not allow, and that was photos of the guns. So, interesting. Um, And you could go through the house and then into the woods to see where Charles killed himself, although apparently a few trees around the scene was missing, and it's thought that they were dug up as souvenirs, too. Like, what... Do you want to weirdo you, swiping raisins and then also swiping trees? Are you planting that that suicide tree in your yard? What? For seventy five cents, I'll let you take a picture of yourself with the skull, using it as a ventriloquist dummy. Yeah. Now, supposedly, uh, at one point in time, there was a neighbor of the Lawsons who became the sheriff during this time period, and he was at the house and. Later received a note from John Dillinger, who said, I toured the house and you didn't even recognize me. 
made me laugh. That did <laughs> me like, too. I was here. Ah. Yeah, yep. well, your penis is going to be cut off post-mortem, so there you go. Who, who's the real winner now? <laughs> it's still you no. with your amazingly large penis, isn't it? Fuck. <laughs> the cake was actually pretty well-preserved until, after five years of showing the house uh, on tours, they decided to shut it down, and someone actually buried the cake. Just bury everything. Blood, <laughs> cakes, just bury it all. A year after shutting the tours down, Marion Lawson actually exhibited his photos of the scene at the Winston-Salem Fair. Um, but, all right, as much as we say this is gruesome, he's profiting, Marion paid off the mortgage on the farm, which keep in mind, it had been, uh, let's see, if they bought it in April of 27 and they were paying yearly, so maybe they paid in 27 and maybe in 28, so they still had $2,200 probably-ish left if they were paying 500 a year so that's quite a that's quite a, a large chunk of it so marion actually pays off the farm free and clear he buys arthur a little sports car and all told gives him about thirty thousand dollars so um and marion then starts up a construction business uh, now that he's out of the murder scene tour business and arthur goes to work for him driving a truck Arthur builds a little house on the property. He got married to a woman named Nina Bybee. It was not a great marriage, but they did have four children. Nancy, Patsy, Maybell, and James Arthur Jr. He did lose the farm at some point. He was drinking quite heavily. And then on May 5th, 1945, Arthur and a friend named Blaine Nelson were at a bar and Arthur was driving them home after they'd had too much to drink. He ends up hitting a road barricade that was set up around an excavation. He's thrown from the truck, and the truck lands on him. And at age 35, he died and then was buried next to the rest of his family. Mm. Yeah. Blaine Nelson did survive. Uh, he had some internal injuries and head injuries. Uh, people tried to live in the cabin. Nobody really reported reported anything haunting. Like it just was, they were just unsettled. You know, they just probably would think about it too much, which I would too. Yeah, I get um, it. I totally get it. Yeah, I get it. I would. I, I would never actually try to live in it. You know, there was also an incident years after the last showing. People would still come out to the house even years after the showing stopped. Um, you know, curiosity seekers and everything. And the neighbor, who also became the, the same eventual sheriff that I mentioned, he and his wife, uh, they had bought the house that Arthur had built and were living there. They take a friend over to the murder scene. And as they're in the house, two teenagers pull up, uh, like, curiosity-seeking. And I actually... Uh, give me a that I needed this. Um, I just went ahead and took a screenshot of the book so I could just read it. And now I need to find it. And I took a whole bunch of screenshots. Um, Come on. Oh, shit. I love this part of the podcast. Dear listener, just get up and grab a drink. Maybe a handful of raisins and some ginger ale. (laughs) All right. So, um, okay. So this is Hill, the Mr. Hill that is at the house with his wife and, and a friend. 
Uh, he saw. I'm just going to read it verbatim. He saw that the visitors were a young couple, a teenage boy and his girlfriend. While the two were getting out of their car, Hill and his friend decided they might as well have a little fun with the boy and girl. They agreed between themselves that just as the couple entered the cabin, they would begin to make eerie, scary sounds and make them think there were ghosts in the house. This should be good for quite a laugh, they thought. They expected the boy and girl to walk up to the house and enter together. For some reason, the boy hesitated and the girl reached the house first. She stood waiting in the doorway, not quite willing to enter without company. Hearing the sounds of footsteps on the front porch, Hill's friend believed the couple had entered the house. He drew a long breath and emitted one of the saddest, most horrible-sounding moans imaginable. The young boy had come just close enough to the house to hear the sounds. He wheeled around and sprinted back to the car as fast as he could. He cranked it and had, in his, had it in gear before his girlfriend could even reach it. She barely made it in the car before he had his wheels spinning and spitting out dust and gravel behind him. He whipped the car around and spun down the old bumpy drive and was gone. This wasn't exactly how Hill and his friend had imagined their joke would come off. As fast as they could, they ran out on the front porch and tried desperately to wave the couple down. The boy and girl never took even one glance back at the old Lawson cabin. Hill and his friend had no way of knowing who the two teenagers were or where they had, from where they had come. People still traveled great distances to see the Lawson home, and Hill had no way of knowing if these were local teens or if they had driven some distance. Then afterwards, they feel really bad because <laughs> they're like, oh, it was really funny to see him running away, but uh, we, we could have given one of those kids a heart attack or have made them wreck their car as they were trying to, to flee the ghost. Um, so, and they never saw those, you know, they, they really wanted to explain that to the, the couple that they had just been playing a joke, but they never saw either of them. They, that was the last time they saw them. So. I, I hope you're all fucking happy with yourself. <laughs> so, um, okay. And in the eighties, the house was torn down. Uh, but if you, there's a private road nearby with a covered bridge over a creek, and that was built from the materials from the torn down house. As for theories, uh, we mentioned that that newspaper I mentioned that had the notice about the financial thing. The book poo-poo's financial issues as a potential motive because it said it was only two months after the Great Depression started, or at least two months after you know the, the, the stock market plunged into chaos and horror. It wasn't really affecting farmers in North Carolina yet, but um, that same newspaper said, quote, and this was in a separate article. This was about the, you know, kind of recapping the past year to the farmers of the state. Last year was one of the worst ever experienced. Tobacco growers received but little more than half what they would get for their crops in a good year. The cotton crop was greatly damaged by the okay, cotton. Um, scores of notices of land for sale for taxes are posted in almost every courthouse in the state. And in Beaufort County alone, several thousands of acres of land are being sold for taxes. It was a hard year on the farmer. So I think that does lend some credence to at least that financial issues were bothering him or were part of the entire uh you know, cavalcade of, of horror going on in his head. And then we talked about a little bit about the TBI, the traumatic brain injury potential. So um, the long-term effects I looked up, um, cognition, such as difficulty learning, remembering, making decisions, and reasoning. So you can have disturbances to your senses. Communication, such as trouble talking, reading, writing, and explaining feelings or thoughts. So the whole walking away in the middle of a conversation. Also, behavior, including difficulty with social situations, relationships, self-control, or aggression, those seem to apply, and emotions, including depression, anxiety, mood swings, and irritability. So, 
that does seem to potentially play in. But the book, the book goes with the worst from like, you know, the experience of this family, the worst theory possible. Incest. An anonymous woman called the author. Uh, She said she was 14 uh, when she toured the murder site in July 1930. She didn't... uh, didn't even live in the state, but she came with family from Virginia, and their tour guide told them that Charles Lawson killed his family because Marie was pregnant and he was the father. Fanny found found out about the pregnancy and this whole thing towards the end of her first trimester or beginning of her second and bugged Marie about who the father was until Marie admitted that the father was her father. Then cousin Stella, who remember of the... Preminative dream. I like that word. I like that word. I'm looking it up, seeing if it's not. If it's not, I, I think I'm going to uh, gonna write a little email to Oxford. With the power vested in me by the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown as an English major, I dub thee... A word. A word. <laughs> God so, yeah, damn it, we... it is a word. Premonitive. I thought I, thought I invented something. <laughs> One day, your your time will come, oh. Scott. You'll invent a word. Oh, premonotopia. That's whenever you have a vision that goes the same in reverse as forward. Hey, calm down before you end up as one of those frustrated inventors. That's true. <laughs> better get, better beat off after this or during. Our, <laughs> our patrons know all about the frustrated inventor after uh, this week's old tiny. So yes, Stella comes to the author of the book and says that she had overheard her aunts discussing it the evening after the funeral, and one of her aunts actually told her the whole story, which was that Fanny found out about the whole situation, told her sisters-in-law, the aunts, and everything was falling apart with Charlie's health, Marie was looking to get out and get married, and so all this came together into this just horrible, horrible tapestry of awfulness that made him do what he did. Um, now that same author in the book that she wrote later, that was basically an expanded version. Um, cause it was like her and her father, I think wrote the first one. And then she, I don't know if the father helped with this expanded version or not, but, um, she had someone come forward and in the expanded version, she included this bit that a friend of Marie's, uh, said Marie had come to her just a few weeks before Christmas and told her she was pregnant and the father was her father. And Marie also stated that her mom and her bat- dad both knew. Yep, friend was so. Ella May Johnson, is what I have there. Yes. And, and the author of the book, uh, what the heck was the name of that book? Bloody, gory, god-awful Christmas? or White Christmas, bloody Christmas. White Christmas, bloody Christmas. <laughs> Whenever she put that theory forth in her book, she started to get death threats from people from the area. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Now, that uh, on the site where they, they, they talk about the ballad, it's Fresno State's site, their, their ballad index, which actually discusses the case and points out that these theories aren't mutually exclusive. You know, the TBI could have made him more likely to be violent or less able to hold back on any sort of, you know, incestuous impulses towards his daughter. Um, that feels like I'm saying that anybody with a TBI is capable of committing incest. I'm not. Um, 
but and it's their theory. It's their theory. It's not mine. It's not mine. I didn't do it. Um, talk to uh, oh gosh, this is hilarious. In my sources, talk to the 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 men who wrote this over on Fresno State's Ballad Copyright Index. One of whom is named Robert B. Waltz. God damn it. It has to be fake. It has to be. It has to be. I can't accept that it's real. I, oh, yeah. I am Scott D. Cha-Cha. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, those are basically the theories. Um, and, yeah, and if the financial, if there were financial issues and those were playing in, it did seem kind of like he was spending, he was spending money like he knew it wouldn't matter to him towards the end there. Um and then there's the inscription on their tombstone. Not now, but in the coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand. Which is... Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever understand, but um, it's, it's hopeful. Did you, see, then, did you see the creepiness with the tombstone? What, what creepiness in particular? There, there are people who say that whenever the leaves fall, they'll fall on all the graves except for Charlie's. Ooh. Well, it's not Charles's. It's all, it's all of... Oh, all the graves. So, yeah, because they're... Well, how do they know exactly which one is Charles? There's that's, no specific marker. That's the point. That's the point. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, if there's no specific marker, I'm sure that somebody there knows, yeah, that's where he's buried. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, and it, it is a family cemetery. It's the Browder's mm-hmm. family cemetery. So, and then the book, the book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, concludes with a recipe for Marie's raisin cake. God damn it! Which I am absolutely not going to make and then leave on Scott's doorstep. The one thing that shouldn't have survived did. So that is the Lawson family murders. Brutal, horrifying, difficult to get through. And then there's raisin cake and nobody is the better for it. So anything I missed? Yes. Let's have fun with this. Okay. Yeah, sure. Nothing spells fun like familicide. What if he didn't do it? Are you thinking Arthur? No. No. Arthur was sent to the store for ammunition because they were out. I actually think Charlie sent Arthur to the store because that's... He wanted him out of the way. That's the one person that could stop him in the family. Exactly. Yeah. But they were also shooting all morning, so wouldn't wouldn't Arthur have been like, we still have plenty of bullets. Why would I go to the store for more? I can see all kinds of potential there. Um, maybe Charles had this planned out, and so he had a cache of, of ammo hidden in, like, the barn or something um, so that, you know, he would have an excuse and, or, and, and would have the, the ammunition even when they ran out. That could have even been, like, the whole reason for, you know, he was, he was constructing a reason to get Arthur off the farm, and he was like, oh, well, I'll just have the guys over, well, I'll shoot a whole bunch, and then I'll send them off for ammo. Just, like, you know, you know it makes sense because then we have to go hunting for our dinner so there we go well there was actually a whole lot of fun theories in this about like maybe it wasn't entirely him like there were three murder guns why does one person need three guns so because they take a while to load the book uh bloody butt fuck gory god awful christmas (laughs) whatever the fuck the name of it is 
It actually, it actually says that there is a witness to the murders. There was like a small child that was there. And the person we, we talked about the small child and what have you. And supposedly this person, now now long past, quite honestly, uh, said that, you know, the father, the kids were out there. They were shooting tin cans, which is the most southern thing that you can do. Um, I have shot tin cans. So have I. And I'm you, not southern. You, you also said pencil talkie. Well, okay, fair. Yeah. But I, sh- I shot tin cans in Iowa. And he... <laughs> yeah. Iowa talkie. Um, but it, it was a thing where he's, the, this guy said, yeah, I was there. I hid whenever the murders went down. And it was, it was a thing where they were shooting the tin cans. And the father looked at, at the son and said, I'm out of bullets. Why don't you run down? And, you know, it's Christmas, but it was a thing where you could still run down, knock on the guy's door, and he would, he would give you bullets and then, you know, pay, pay for it back. And then he went and shot the one daughter first, and I started to hide. But then his gun jammed, so he used the other gun, the shotgun. And honestly, I got to say, after reading the book, man, a lot of it seems like just absolute bullshit. Okay. Yeah. Can, can I tell you my favorite theory? Go for it. Aliens. No. Lizards. People. Serial killers. Demon semen. <laughs> the name of my so, new band. <laughs> somebody actually went through and said that the, this, like, family mass murder, the familicide, I believe is, is the title. This family was, annihilator is another term for it. But this was actually pretty frequent. So, like, around the same time frame, we've got Huntington, West Virginia. Herbert Pittinger was said to have killed his family in the same way as Lawson in 1931. They found a gun near his body. And the mild manner barber was said to have undergone a fit of insanity. Then there's Chamberlain Mantooth, lived with his family in Tennessee. 1906, took an axe to his wife and six children and then slit his own throat, which that would be really friggin' difficult to do. Um, and then we have like Dave Hawk in Newport said to have killed his family in 1928. He was actually a well-to-do farmer. He killed his wife and four daughters supposedly, and they attributed that to mania. And he also had a, a, a gun near him. Um, and then there's, there's even more. There's, uh, Mr. Bromfield in Virginia with his wife and five children in 1891, the Kleins and their three children in also 1891, uh, the Justice family in 1909 in Virginia, and then uh, the Staus family in 1910. All of these are fits of mania. So here's, here's my theory on that. I, I don't think it was a serial killer because... I want it to be! Oh, I want it to be too. <laughs> and here's the thing. This probably makes me a bad person, all the school shootings, I want them to be, I want them to be false flag events um, because it's so much cooler to think that it's a false flag event, that your government is doing something to you. But the, the thing is, and I, I honestly believe this, we as human beings don't like to believe one person can fucking snap and take out an entire classroom 
of kids or murder his family in, in a fit of mania or whatever you want to call it. We don't like to think that. So immediately our brain goes to the next thing. Oh, no, it was serial killers. No, he was coerced into doing this. No, it's a false flag event. Those kids are still alive. These parents, you know, they aren't this. Uh, there were five shooters in the, in the Batman movie theater that night. No, it's just we don't like to admit one person has that much power. Or can do that to their own family. Too. Yeah, yeah. In this case, I, I know a lot of the cases that you talked about weren't necessarily family-oriented crimes, but, you know, in, in this case, it's, you know, it, it's worse when it's the family and not strangers. So the, the, the brain goes extra far to try to grasp for some sort of other explanation and make it a stranger, you know? Um, and then we also have to keep in mind, I think, you know, not to, not to poo-poo Amber's theory, but th- those bouts of mania, A... I mean, granted, you mentioned a couple other times that we're out of the Great Depression and a couple of people who, like, like one of the farmers was well-to-do and all that, but you also have a, a time of, of great, great just hellishness for the country financially. People well, are suffering greatly, and, and mental health care, not a thing. Well, at least one of those uh, family murders had all of their bank books and money stolen. So um, there's at least one of those that was definitely not the father lost his mind and killed the family. Okay, that one's creepy. I'll give you that one. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly give you that one. And we might want to, maybe we might want to look into that and do that one sometime. There seemed like there was enough information that we could do a case on that. I have no idea. I'll look it up. I'm going to take, for sure, for sure. I'm going to take this handful of raisins. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to take this bloody handkerchief. Oh, and the checkbooks. <laughs> Everybody, please. Send us raisins for Scott, <laughs> please. I wanna, I wanna see the look on his face. I'm, I'm gonna buy a used sex toy and then stuff it with raisins and send it to Scott. Look, a very bizarre uh, angle, but okay. Do me. A I'm favor. also gonna put Sylvia Brown's face on it. Do me a favor. <laughs> the, I go fifty-fifty on raisins. I don't like like the the dark raisins. I do like the California white raisins. The golden raisins. The golden raisins. Yes. Those are good raisins. All right. That is the Lawson family murders and raisins. Um, <laughs> what are we? Uh, oh, wait. I got to do my spiel. All right. Social media. Follow us. Come talk to us. Tell us. Did you think it was uh, incest? Do you think it was financial insecurity issues? Do you think it was traumatic brain injury or, you know, all of the above? We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as old, timey, crimey. Also, come check out our Patreon because we just did a really fun old tiny crimey and there's a whole bunch more. There's over 30 old tiny crimeys, many of which you have not heard that could provide hours of just great enjoyment in your ears of little cases that we do. They're about 20 to 30 minutes generally. And so, yeah, come by our Patreon, patreon.com slash old tiny crimey. And, um... Oh, uh, buck on the nightstand if you're not in it for a long-term relationship. You just want to, you know, split. Leave a buck on the nightstand for us. Seriously, I'm not even kidding. I'm not insulted by a dollar. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I'm not. No, I'll put no. it in the spreadsheet and be happy. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a dollar. I'm not going to tell you what we do with it. We have our raisins. <laughs> <laughs> that was horrible, and I loved it. Thank you. <laughs> 
So yeah, uh, you can do that via PayPal at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And oh yeah, my other podcast, Detectives by the Decade. Give it a listen if you haven't. If you did listen to it, keep listening. So we're, I'm, I'm having some fun over there and I get some nice, nice voice work from, uh, from my co-hosts here. And yeah, that's, uh, that's all my shit. Um, and okay. What are we doing this weekend? You guys, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to re-listen to this episode because something creepy happened during the episode. Uh, whenever I said Scott Cha-Cha, I heard a male voice go, ha, like that. It almost oh, sounded just... like Jackson. It wasn't. He's not in here, and you just gave me such chills. Yeah, I'm going to listen to that right away. But then for fun, uh, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow is all Scott's day. After work, I'm going to go visit my friend Al for just a few minutes. I'm going to order my favorite pizza from my favorite place. And I am going to sit down and I'm going to binge watch the new Netflix Transformers uh, series. And no one's going to stop me. I don't <laughs> care if half the house burns down. I'll move over to the other half. <laughs> it's my time. Um, so I'm just going to say I'm pretty sure that weird noise you heard was me. Okay. Um, because I was trying to take a drink and not spit it all over my computer. Okay. When you said Scott Cha-Cha. So I think the, the weird noise was not really a man's laugh, but me trying not to die. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Mystery solved. I can't be certain. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, what are you doing this weekend? I am um, researching... Gluten-free diets for toddlers. Oh, my. Oh, does somebody have celiac? No, no. I think she's getting, a like, an itchy rash. And there is a, um, a family history of, of celiac. And so um, we, we did a little bit of research on it. And uh, it's a very possible thing that she is not an allergy, but a sensitivity. Mm. So um, I have to figure out ways because that girl loves bread uh, mm. <laughs> on how to like just at least lessen the amount of of like uh, wheat and, and gluten in our diets. So that is that is my weekend is uh, new recipes. Fun times. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, I am well, we did finally get our gazebo for the deck, but it's going to be stormy over the next several days or potential for storms. So we might not set it up just yet. Um, I might be continuing. We've been watching on Hulu, actually, Travel Man. It's with uh, Richard Iode. Iowade. Iowade, thank you. I hear him say his name every single episode, and I still can't get it. Iowade, if you remember him, from the IT crowd. And he basically uh, travels around, does like a 48-hour mini break with various uh, people. Uh, many of whom I'm sure are famous in England, but I don't know their faces. But it's fun and it's enjoyable, and it made me decide that uh, someday I'm going to go to Budapest and ha- and have goulash. If so. you want, if you want Richard Iowati at his absolute fucking best, check out a series called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Okay, it is him at his absolute fucking best, and it's got Matt I'd- Barry in it too. So, oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. I just adore him, even though I can't say his name. I, uh, it's it's a really fun series, and I recommend it to anybody uh, who's got a little bit of wanderlust going on. Although it does kind of strengthen the wanderlust sometimes, rather than help to dampen it. I was like, I'm gonna start researching Budapest and 
learn Hungarian and go he, there. First off, you got to get real pretentious and start calling it Budapest. I did that a little bit, actually. I, I was doing it. Um, uh, I, was, I was saying that to Jackson, and I was like, and then we're going to go to Budapest. And no, I will not stop pronouncing like, it like that. And nobody can stop me. But I thought I would, for once, not be pretentious on the podcast. Yeah, and next um, you'll be going like an American. Next you'll be going to Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona. So, yeah. I already pronounced French things what some people would call pretentiously, and I just think is Frenchly. So, um, yeah, I'm Scott so, yeah. Nutt. That's uh, that's probably some of my weekend. I don't know what else I'm going to do. I might read a book, I think. Um, so, yeah, that's it for me. So, that has been our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you uh, joining us every week. We hope this has been uh, an edifying time for you and that you have learned a lot. And, um, yeah, it's been a dark one. So, sorry about that. We'll lighten it up next week, maybe. I don't know. It's somebody else's turn to pick. So, uh, it, 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 it's not on me. Next <laughs> week, the, think- next week, the murder is going to be so fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's my turn. So, it's probably only going to get worse from here. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> so, yes, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, thank you for listening to our filthy words, of course. Why didn't I not say that? Thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye. 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 My sources are Neil Caldwell on the Stokes News, Wikipedia, Robert B. Walton, David G. Engel on uh, Fresno State's Ballad Copyright Index. M. Bruce Jones and Trudy J. Smith, The Book, White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Brooke Kane on The News and Observer. And the Watauga Democrats and also the Independent out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, accessed via our favorite newspaper depository, the Library of Congress's Chronicling America. My sources for this week are the podcast Most Notorious, the website Medium.com, planetslade.com www.news.com.au wikipedia and murderpedia my sources this week are murderpedia rockinghamnow.com by Susie c spear findagrave.com new.com.au by candace sutton planetslade.com by paul slade and virginiacreeper.com Ooh, i like that yeah <laughs>